GoneMobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. I know it's been a long time since our last episode, and and we kept hearing from people wondering when we were gonna when we were gonna come back and do some more episodes, or whether we abandoned the show. But uh, the the reality is that that life did that thing that it's good at doing, where it kind of got in the way, and somehow a few months got away from us. But but we're back, and we're excited to get back into the swing of things. How are you doing over there, John? I'm doing well. I've got less snow than you guys right now, I think, and I'm from Canada after all, so this is this is good. Yeah, we got. Depending on where in New York you were, it was somewhere between two and three feet, so it was uh, quite a bit of snow. There's a little bit left on the ground here, mostly green grass, though. <laughs> well, you can come here and take some if you want. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> So for this episode, to get things kind of rolling again, we figured we'd go with um, uh, kind of a tried and true topic that, that's still worth talking through. And it's something that I've been working quite a bit with recently. And as everyone knows, uh, John is a resident expert on. Um, so what we're talking about is, is push notifications here. So given that you're the resident expert, I figured this would more or less be you know a, a stump John kind of session, or they'll just lob some questions at you and see how we do. Yeah, it's pretty good timing. I'm doing a little bit of work finally again on Push Sharp. Um, I, it was a project that got away from me, kind of like our podcast. And really at like the last Evolve already, I had an incredible amount of people come up to me. I don't even know how they knew you know, that I was who I was or whatever, but a lot of people came up and were asking about Push Sharp and, you know, oh, I use it and thanks so much. And my first thought was like, oh, I hope you're not really using it because it doesn't work <laughs> that well right now. Um, so needless to say, I kind of, I made a, a pledge to myself that I would rebuild it. I would make it better after I, I saw that people were actually still interested in it. And, um, it took a little while, but, uh, I've, I'm finally working on the three dot X series of push sharp and there's some betas already out there and you can get your hands on those on NuGet already. So a lot better code. And I'm sure we'll dig into that a little bit more too. Yeah, yeah. So before we kind of dig into the that sort of side of things and libraries and and hosting options and that sort of thing, uh, I figure it, it might be good to to start at a, a higher level and and let's say like like so how are how do push notifications work a, in a general sense and like what does Apple do with iOS and what does Android do with um or what does Google do with Android? Yeah, um, they all work roughly the same, which is kind of nice, and, and which is why I was able to to make Push Sharp as a library. Um, so they all follow the general pattern of on your device, in your application, you need to ask the operating system, hey, can I receive push notifications? And once you do that, the operating system basically gives you back this special token. And for the most part, that token is is a unique thing um, for your application, and not only for your application, but also for that specific device uh, or that user on that device in a, a scenario where you might have multiple users. So once you've got that token, um, that's sort of like your your address, your phone number, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, to send a notification to that particular uh, person, to that application, to that device. And once you've got that token, you need to do something with it. And most people are going to send that back to their own servers to to store it and maybe associate it with like a user account or something. And then in your own services, you will do something that wants that that'll trigger a notification. Um, and once you've got sort of that event in your own system, you'll go and and figure out what which of those special tokens you want to send that notification to and construct it and. and Instead of sending it to directly to the device yourself, you actually send it to the provider's uh, server infrastructure. So, you know, if you're sending it to iOS, you're sending it to Apple servers and Android to Google servers and so forth. So that's really the general idea behind them all. Um, they're all implemented a little bit differently, but for the most part, it's all based on that one special token and sending it to the right place. So then that token that you're getting back with the the request that you make in your app out to to Apple or for Google, is that spo- uh, scoped specifically for the app that's making the request or does it work on a more uh, wider scale? Yeah, um, some of the providers have these different ideas of, of topics now, uh, which can address multiple devices. Uh, but generally, you've got th- that registration token. Uh, I th- the terminology I generally use in my library is a registration ID. 
uh, even though you know Apple calls it a device token, uh, Google does call it a registration ID, and Windows calls it something else, some kind of URL endpoint, uh, without knowing off the top of my head. <laughs> um, but that that token is for the most part specific to that application, and and again, it's that application on that device for that specific user. So it's it's really scoped quite specifically. Cool. So then, like, let's say that we. You know, I'm I'm someone who's writing my own platform service somewhere, some server side stuff to to send push notifications, and I want to to do the integration with with Apple and Google myself. Like, what are the the protocols that they use? Like, what, how do you actually communicate with these different push services? So the nice thing is that most of the providers actually do this over HTTP, which is pretty simple, right? Most developers know how to to send a request to some kind of a web service to a REST web service. And this is how Google does it. Uh, this is how Microsoft does it. This is how Amazon does it. Um, you know, BlackBerry does it roughly the same as well. And then there's Apple. <laughs> I noticed that missing as, <laughs> as you were going on and on there. Yeah, so I, I've got a little bit of a, a beef um, with Apple about this. And um, it's it's changing a little bit. But historically, they've always used this binary protocol. Um, so this involved you figuring out on a, a you know byte and bit level how to actually send the information to Apple. So you had to make this secure uh, SSL authenticated connection to their servers, and then you had to format your message in just a, the right way. And you know that in itself isn't so bad. Um, it's the the fact that the way that they handled uh, errors was a little bit less than ideal. So. Uh, originally in like version one of their their protocol, whenever you would send them some kind of invalid data, they would just close the connection on you. So you wouldn't really know what went wrong, which message went wrong. Um, and that was really tedious. Although, you know, at least at that point, you could almost figure that the message that you sent last before you got that closed connection was probably the one that caused it to fail. Um, However, they introduced a, a, an update to that, and this is still quite a, a while ago already. It's been a while that they've had this enhanced uh, binary protocol, and they give you uh, error feedback on this one. So they basically, the idea is that you send as many notifications at them as you can, uh, you know, one by one by one, and if there's a problem with one of them, they'll send you this little bit of data back on the connection that refers to one of the notifications that caused the failure. So when you're sending them notifications, they all of your notifications will have some kind of identifier with them um, so that you know when you get that error back, which one it refers to. Now, the problem with that was they only sent you a, a status if there was some error and they wouldn't send you a status after a message succeeded. So you're in the business of basically waiting for something to fail. And unfortunately, you could probably, if your app was sending stuff fast enough, you could probably get like a good thousand notifications sent to them before you got an error back from, you know, the one, uh, a thousand notifications before that actually failed. So you have to keep track of your own queue uh, of sent notifications and sort of assume after a while that the notification was sent successfully if you didn't see an error. And so a lot of libraries, the way they would implement this is uh, basically waiting after they sent a notification. So you'd send one, wait, maybe 500 milliseconds, maybe 250 milliseconds. Apple doesn't really give you an idea of how long you should expect to wait for an error. Uh, so you can imagine that didn't scale very well. <laughs> right, right. So like, was there any particular time span that you found was a kind of a good happy medium for figuring out if there was an error? Yeah, I, generally what I, I've seen is, you know, between a quarter and a half a second, um, what I ended up doing and what Apple's real recommendation for doing was to actually, you know, sit on those messages in some kind of queue. Um, and then you can keep sending them notifications so that you're not waiting on every single one that comes through. And if you do that, you know, you can maybe wait one or two seconds before you declare something successful because you're not really, you're not blocking your connection on sending new ones. You're just kind of keeping them in this sent queue, waiting for them to time out as sent successfully, in essence. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So then, so is it basically, 
do you essentially have like a socket connection open with Apple and this is you're you're just kind of queuing things through that one socket connection? Yeah, exactly. And and they want you to keep that connection open, you know, relatively long term. So um, they don't really publish exact guidelines on this, but if you keep opening and closing a connection, like for every notification that you send, they'll eventually block you uh, because mm. they, they view that as a, a denial of service attack. So um, generally you keep the connection open as long as you can. Um, and then, you know, you keep sending those messages through and, and they, with some of their like auxiliary support documents, if you look in the deep bowels of the internet, you can see that they, that you might expect to send like, 9,000 notifications a second as throughput. So it's a really scalable in terms of speed solution. It's just not very practical to implement. And, and, you know, there's a ton of libraries out there that basically don't implement it in a scalable way. And I think Apple has finally started to realize this. (laughs) And is it something that they're okay with you parallelizing and running multiple socket connections? Or do they recommend that you basically just have one and funnel it all through one place? Yeah, for them, it was it's more of a, a recommendation based on your throughput needs. So, the you know if if in an ideal world you were sending like five, let's say even five thousand a second, and you needed to actually do more than five thousand a second, you could open more connections, and they didn't really stop you from doing that, even if your throughput was lower. Um, but the the problem is, you know, more developers are taking that approach of send one and wait half a second. Well. All of a sudden, to try and get even a few hundred notifications a second, you can imagine how many connections you need open to do that. And then, so the, their whole idea of you know let's make this a really efficient protocol by not sending you a status back after every notification. Well, people were working around that anyway, and, and making that inefficient anyway. Right, right. And what about on the the Android side too? Are there any sort of rate limits or connection limits or anything imposed there, or is it really just a free for all, like as fast as you can? get it through to Apple and Google, you're good to go. Uh, in the, in the original days. So Google has a little bit of history too. We can back up a second. Um, they used to call their implementation cloud to device messaging, which you'll see still some remnants of that with the acronym C2, like the number two DM. Hmm. Um, so even when you set up, uh, which is the new version, which is now called Google cloud messaging or GCM, um, you'll still see like some of the permissions you have to add to your app still have that old uh, C2DM acronym in them because they still sort of use the same um, endpoint code or logic on the device to so that they're ensuring backwards compatibility, you know, back to really early Android API level days. So uh, originally in those the C2DM days, you actually had to fill out like this little Google spreadsheets form to get your key and like, send how many requests you're expecting to make each day and and stuff like that. And they, from what I could tell, there was really no hard limit. Um, and I, and I still don't think there really is, um, there might be something that the, the Google API developer console says now, like when you go to set up your application, you have to go into their little developer console and, and give yourself the appropriate, uh, permissions and everything for your application. Um, so they might have some guidance around that now, but generally it's fairly free for all. Gotcha. And you mentioned in passing their keys. And one of the other things that we should definitely talk a bit about is what's actually involved in in setting up push notifications for both of these platforms and keys and certificates and, and all that fun stuff. Could you could you kind of elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So Apple, again, sadly, is, is sort of the <laughs> tedious one to set up. Um, you've got to, well, they changed it recently. It used to be that you had to go in and make two separate um, certificates. So you had to like set up your your certificate request uh, locally, uh, send that up to Apple, and then for every different application that you were making, like every different bundle identifier, you know that like say com dot company dot app name uh, that you would make on Apple's website with your provisioning profiles and everything, you'd have to go and make actually one certificate for connecting to their sandbox services and one certificate for connecting to their production services. Um, They've since unified those that you only need to make one certificate to connect to both places, which I don't know why it took them so long, but finally they have. Um, It's still a little bit tedious because you've got to set that up on a a per application basis, of course. Um, But then once you've got that certificate, um, that's that's what you need to send uh, notifications from your server to their server. 
that's sort of what authenticates you for your application so that they know, okay, this is actually supposed to go to, to this application on the device. Okay. And then what about the, the Google side of things? What's the setup like there? So it, th- there's this a little, I mean, it's, it's somewhat the same, but a little bit less onerous. You basically go into the uh, API developer console, set up your application uh, with your, the correct matching uh, identifier that your application will have. And then you get this API token that you'll then use from your server to send to their server notifications. So it's, it's a little bit less difficult. Um, I mean, one of the the problems that Apple has, um, because they differentiate production and sandbox environments for sending notifications and Google doesn't. And, and one thing that a lot of people I find fall into this trap is that with Apple, if you want to send notifications to the sandbox, you actually have to to get your device token generated from a build of your app that is built with the developer provisioning profile. And that that's pretty straightforward, but where people mix things up is if you want to send uh, a push notification to an application that was compiled with an ad hoc provisioning profile, if you have a device token that was generated from a, an app that was built with a provision, uh, d- sorry, ad hoc provisioning profile. So you have to speak slowly to get this straight. <laughs> then you must connect to the production APNS servers to send notifications. So some people think that ad hoc, you know, you can mix and match sandbox servers and ad hoc provisioning profiles and, and you can't. So that um, hopefully that even if it sounds confusing, it'll encourage people to actually go look up what, you know, what they must do to send it to the right places. Right. And kind of as a corollary to that, I know one thing that um, briefly tripped me up when I was setting some of this up locally uh, pretty recently was that at least running as far as development profiles go, like historically, I've almost always used wildcard profiles for things, especially at, say, the company I'm at now, our apps all follow a a format of com.olo.something. So even for ad hoc builds, we were able to usually get away with, um, you know, wildcard profiles there. And and especially for the local development stuff, there's no reason to set up separate provisioning profiles for each one. But, you know, lo and behold, as you mentioned, you know, you need to have the proper provisioning profile set up even for the development one. So you need to have a separate, like specific provisioning profile for local development that has your exact bundle ID in it. Yeah. And then same goes for ad hoc and app store as well. So, and and it makes sense to some extent because what they're trying to do is when you send a message to their server, they want to be sure that you have permission to send notifications to an app. So if you had a wildcard identifier, it wouldn't really know which app to route it to. I mean, they could have obviously implemented that with some kind of field that specified the, you know, the app that it was going to, but they didn't. So that's, that's the way that you've got to do it, unfortunately. Right. Well, in theory, the 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 token that they get or that they give you back when you register the device for push could be tied to a specific app identifier yeah, or something yeah, that's too, right? True, yeah. But lo and behold, they they well, haven't yeah. <laughs> they haven't made that happen. They've made life a little bit more difficult for for people in your situation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that applies to lots of things. <laughs> Um, but then like the other side of it is like, what does their sandbox environment kind of give you over the production environment? Like, obviously you don't have a choice of whether you're using sandbox or production environment. It has everything to do with how you compiled your app and what profile you use. But is there anything that the sandbox gives you that, that is beneficial? Um, I have a feeling they're a little bit more lenient in terms of like denial of service, uh, attack kind of looking behavior, um, so if you were to throw a bunch of weird connections at them, they might not be so quick to block your IP address from it. Uh, other than that, not that I really can think of off the top of my head, unfortunately. It's it's more just, um, I, I wonder if they're trying to segment themselves so that they can you know, have their production be a little bit more reliable of a server environment uh, and not have people throwing weird data at it that might trip it up so much. Makes sense. And you did you say before that on the Google side there there is no idea of a test environment or sandbox environment? Is it all just the same live environment? Yeah, it's all just the same. I mean, you'll you get your registration identifier from 
running the application might be different um, depending on, you know, they don't really give you guidance on when exactly that might change, but you just always have to expect that the registration identifier could change at any time. And so maybe it's different from a, an app that, uh, you know, you've signed with different uh, key stores. Hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun is an essential tool for every developer, helping you detect and diagnose your errors in real time so your team can fix bugs faster. Just a few lines of code is all it takes to get started, and you'll be amazed how quickly you start receiving reports from all of your apps. Why wait for frustrated users to notify you when they hit a bug, and then spend your time digging through log files? Raygun notifies you immediately and with all the information you need. Raygun keeps everyone informed, so whether you have 1 or 100 developers, you'll get everything you need to become an awesome development team. Start your free trial today at raygun.io, and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. So... Okay, so now I have all my certs set up and my provisioning profiles, and I've done the 8,000 steps involved in, in setting those things up. You've done the dance. Yes, I've done the dance. It's not a fun dance, but we do it. And now, now I actually want to send a push notification from my server to one of these uh, services. Like, what, what does one of those messages actually look like? Yeah, um, they they mostly, like, with the exception of Windows, um, Apple and Google basically use like a, a JSON format of a message payload. So uh, they're not identical by any means, but um, Apple, you basically send it, you know, different kinds of notifications. Um, so you can have like an alert pop up and that alert can have like a body to it and some different button actions. And they've started expanding this uh, more with some of the the, the built-in kind of things you can do from the the alert dropdown. Um, it's kind of sad. I haven't haven't been using iOS too much lately, so I'm not exactly up to speed on on exactly that part of it. But uh, I know you can you can specify some additional stuff down the, in that payload. Uh, and Apple, the interesting thing about them is they they sort of dictate how the UI looks for the most part on notifications that you send. Whereas Google, you basically send it this raw payload of json and your application service has to determine what to do with that so you can send a notification to android but it's not going to do anything to the user for the user in the ui automatically you have to tell it to like okay let's make a notification in the notification tray um, it, it's basically open-ended key value pairs that you send at it interesting interesting and then windows for you know the the three people that are listening <laughs> Um, it, it, it uses uh, XML payload. So it's, it's not too much different, but they do have also like a predefined set of templates that you can send. So like different tile arrangements and text titles and subtitle arrangements. Um, but it's, it's done in an XML format. Uh, now they all like, so I mentioned that Google doesn't have really any sort of notion of UI behavior based on notifications. Um, and Apple and, and Windows definitely do, but those other ones, so those other platforms also allow you to send like background, more raw notifications now so that you can like on iOS, there's a special kind of notification you can send that'll give you some time to run some code in the background now. And I think that was like iOS seven or eight. It's more recent. Right. So then, so you mentioned that there's like some different options for things that you could send through and, um, it sounds like Windows seems to lean a little bit closer to iOS in that, you mm -hmm. know, it has kind of prescribed notification types that have direct impacts on how you display it. So I know that like one of the things that you can do on iOS is um, work with the the badge that shows up so that say shows you a number of unread email messages or anything like that. Um, is there any sort of equivalent on Android? Not really. Um, Samsung has like some notion of doing badges with their own SDK. And that's not really, again, that's not really something that a notification causes. Um, you could certainly send that information in your payload and, and in the notification that you construct, you could say like, hey, there's eight unread items or something in the app. But there's there's really nothing by default that um, that does it on Android like it does on iOS or Windows. Right. And then let's say in the case of iOS, if I, so I'm, I send down a, a push notification. It has, it has, you know, we tell iOS what the, the title is and a badge number or actions or anything like that. Um, is there also any sort of ability to send through extra metadata that our app might want to read? Yeah, definitely. You can, um, you can push that through in the, the JSON payload and you can extract that information when your app is launched with that notification information. 
So is that so if I was implementing something like using using a certain push notification as a trigger for a deep link into the app is is that the mechanism for that or is there even like a separate deep link specific API that you could use? Yeah, there's nothing really specific. It would be basically like, you know, passing in whatever data that you would want to deep link to and then your application delegate. So like there's a method that you override um like well the the one that you uh, your application finished launching basically will have that notification information in one of the dictionary par- parameters that's passed in. Um, mm-hmm. The other way that your app might be launched, if it's already running and you receive a notification, there's a did receive notification overload basically in the app delegate. Uh, obviously, I'm kind of speaking in Xamarinisms, but um, same applies for the the delegate and Objective C stuff too. But so you get a dictionary with like the the basically the JSON representation of your notification that was pushed and you can extract stuff from there and navigate however you want. Gotcha. So then another side of it that, that I definitely want to make sure we touch on here is um, like deregistration. So as a user, I can do a couple of things, right? Like I can uninstall, if I uninstall the app entirely, obviously I shouldn't be able to, to send that device, any push notifications or, um, and you know, speaking in iOS terms, you can go to your notification settings and, and flip them off for for a particular app, or kind of change the way that notifications are allowed and disallowed for a particular app. Like, what sort of mechanisms are there for letting you know as as a server that is sending these that you should or shouldn't be sending to a device? So the nice thing about Google and Windows and most of the other platforms is that when you send a notification, when you send an HTTP request to their servers, they'll return you a response that might say, Hey, this registration ID is no longer valid. And at that point you should probably take it out of your database and, you know, disassociate it from any user records or anything like that. Um, but then again, back to, you know, there's always Apple. Um, and, and you know what, like I, before we dig into them too much, I'll, I'll, you know, reveal that we'll, we should probably talk about the new provider API that they've got going. But um, before Definitely. before we get to that, and because they've caused me enough pain previous to that, they there was no error response immediately. So you might get as part of your, you know, remember I said they'll send you an error response if, if a message fails. Well, one of the possible error values is that the device token is is bad. You don't know if that means that it's it never was good or if it's expired or whatever, you just know at that point that you can't send it to that token. Um, but they do have this other thing called the feedback service. And it's this separate um, endpoint. You connect to it on a different port. Again, it's a binary protocol. And you basically connect to it every so often. They don't really tell you exactly how often to connect to it. And they'll just, as soon as you connect to it, they'll just start throwing bytes at you. And those bytes contain... Um, you know, in their specific format, the, all of the device tokens that are no longer good that you should remove from your database. So mm-hmm. they do have the, a, a notion of it as well. It's just done a little bit differently. And it's, it's one of those weird things that like you have to run out of sequence of your normal operations. So it's kind of a, a pain and you, you might send a bunch of notifications to that token before you've run your feedback service and know that the token's bad. So it's it's definitely not ideal, but they definitely do have a, a concept of that as well. And how long does something stay in the that feedback service? Like, so do you basically get one shot to read that yeah. deregistration out of the service? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in practice, if you read that information, ignored it, and continued to send to that device token, they would probably put that back in in the service for the next time that you queried it, but. Yeah, you you read it and it assumes that anything that's sent to you, you've dealt with fine. So gotcha. So they're just kind of relying on you to to at some point stop trying to send to those those tokens. Exactly. And then on the Android and Windows side, it, are they so they're just relying on you to see the response to trying to send it. So you basically don't know until you try to send a notification that that one is gone. Yeah. So yeah, as soon as you send a notification on Android, they'll give you a response right away. Okay. Uh, and it's also possible on Android that the device registration has changed. So they might give you a response that says, you are sending to this device registration ID. Um, that's fine, but it's now changed to this one. So you should update your database with the new identifier. What would what kind of thing would trigger a 
like a, a token change there or is that something that's just invisible to you as as a, de- a developer yeah I, I i'm not entirely sure of what reasons in particular and i don't think at least not since the last time i've read up on the documentation that google really tells you other than you should be prepared to expect that it can happen hmm. so i'm it, it must be something on there and that's that's changing or or you know some changing of servers or or something like that i'm, I'm not entirely sure unfortunately we don't get a good reason for it fair enough <laughs> um so should we talk about the that new Apple provider API? Yeah, that new thing. It's um <laughs> it's it's a step in the right direction. So Apple, like I said, you know, they I think they finally realized that what they provided as a solution was maybe not as good in practice as it was in theory. And so now they've come out with a new provider API and it's HTTP based, but here's the the big caveat. <laughs> It's HTTP2 based. So mm. there's this new spec, if you're not familiar with it, that has very recently been finalized, I guess, or or you know, put out of draft stage. And that's a, a new way to make HTTP requests. In it. And the idea is similar to what Apple was doing already, where you can have this connection to a server and you can send multiple requests over the same connection um, and get multiple responses over the same connection. And the idea is that, especially for web pages, it makes sense. When you're loading a page, you can make one opening of a connection, do all the handshaking and everything, especially for secure connections where there's a little bit more overhead in doing that. And then you can request and receive, you know, uh, let's say the HTML from a page, all the JavaScript, all the CSS, all the different files that you would maybe do individual connections for previously over one single connection. So. The idea that Apple has by using this, um, I would expect, is that you can keep that long-lived connection open to them. You can send them multiple notifications over a single connection, and they can send you responses for each of those. So the nice thing is that even though it's a a bit of a weird standard in terms of nobody's really adopted it yet, um, you will get a status back if your notification fails immediately. So. You we're not playing that game of put all of the sent notifications into this list or queue and just wait a few seconds to determine that they're actually okay. So we can actually get real-time feedback of it. Cool. So is this something that's actually live in production for you to use now, or is this something that they're sort of trialing? Yeah, it, it is live now. Um, if, if That's, I think, since like the middle of December, it went into production. So it's pretty recent. Um, and it was in, here's one good use for the sandbox. It was in sandbox for several months before that, before it hit production. So mm. uh, it is something that they are supporting now. And I think hoping that people move to, but obviously I'm sure it'll be a slow transition. Um, and it's further complicated for us.net users, unfortunately, because the connection that we make to those servers, they are requiring to be uh, secure, which is a good thing, but they're requiring, uh, they're the spec for HTTP2 requires TLS 1.2. And for those of you following along at home, <laughs> it um, basically means that like Mono doesn't support it yet. Uh, Windows, it, it will work on Windows, but there's also some parts to the, the, the spec that don't quite work. Um, there's a, a uh, extension protocol to TLS called ALPN, and it's basically to negotiate the actual application protocol over the connection. And one of the popular classes that we use to implement secure streaming connections is SSL stream and .NET. And unfortunately, that stream class has no API support for this application level uh, extension protocol. So right now, I'm, I'm I've started work on Push Sharp on on implementing this. HTTP2 stuff with Apple, and I'm running into a few roadblocks like that that are preventing me from getting into production. But hopefully, um, you know, I'll find some some ways around that in the near future. Yeah, and another, you know, just as an aside on the TLS 1.2 thing, like I actually ran into some issues with that, even just on the pure .NET side recently, because as it turns out, TLS 1.2 isn't enabled by default on the network stack until .NET 4.6. <laughs> So we had some stuff running on, uh, you know, four five two or whatever the the version was there, and you have to like very explicitly turn on like a a, f- a switch that says first of all 
globally, it's like a static switch that you set, which seems incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So like a, li- a library could completely muck with your protocols. <laughs> um, but we had to explicitly say, you know, TLS 1.2 is okay before we could connect to one of our services that only supported 1.2. So it's definitely, uh, it's a little bit raw. Yeah. And th- and that's one of the reasons why I kind of, um, you know, I'm a little bit annoyed still at how Apple is doing things because they picked this brand new protocol that really has not a lot of history behind it. And they're moving towards it as their, their standard before sort of the rest of the world catches up. And I mean, I guess you can argue that that's probably not a bad choice for them to make, but it certainly makes life a lot more difficult for people who are trying to get things done. Right. So I think that's probably a really good segue into the other side of this, which is, well, what if I don't want to write any of this crap myself? I want to use some sort of abstraction layer, be it Push Sharp or Azure or AWS, um, which is, or, you know, any number of other services out there, you know, Urban Airship and Parse. And, you know, there's no shortage of services that will send push notifications on your behalf. Um, which is probably what most people are going to actually be doing, right? Yeah, I mean, given you know that they're all fairly similar, but yet all entirely different in how you implement them, it's probably not something that you want to implement yourself. Um, obviously, if there's a library out there that does it already, why wouldn't you use that? Um, and to be honest, one of the reasons, like I mentioned earlier in the show, that that I had kind of not enjoyed hearing that everyone was using push sharp <laughs> still was I had kind of written it off to be honest, because, um, the platforms like Azure and, and Amazon came out with their own implementations of this, uh, and, and basically doing the same thing that push sharp was doing, but doing it, you know, in the cloud and doing it for really cheap. I think like both of them are down to like a dollar for a million notifications that you send or something like that. Like it's, it's mm. pretty reasonably priced now. Um, especially compared to running your own server with your own custom implementation on it. So I had just really assumed and started telling people like use these services because they're, they're pretty good. It's easy to use. They do what you need to, to be done. And I thought that was the end of it, but um, people seem to still want to do this on their own. Um, and maybe there's some project requirements that don't let them use Azure, Amazon, or other third-party services to, to do this. So that that sort of makes sense. But um, yeah, I mean, going back to the, the options, um, like I said, Azure and Amazon both have implementations. I think uh, I, Azure works uh, with Apple, with Google, obviously, um, with Windows as well, given that they're Microsoft, they're <laughs> probably better. And I think they also support Amazon too, which Amazon, so like the Fire devices, the Fire OS devices are all Android based and Amazon has their own push notification infrastructure in place. The nice thing about it is it is basically the same API as Google's Google Cloud Messaging. So from like an implementation perspective, um, you know, in building Push Sharp, it was pretty simple to add as a a provider. Um, But not every cloud service you're going to come across is going to have support for that. And that's where some of the ones like Parse and Urban Airship fall down a little bit. And they might have caught up since I've taken a look at them. But I know originally they were like, you know, iOS is number one. If we have time for it, we'll add Google. And we don't really care about anyone else. So if if you do have apps on more devices than those couple platforms, you probably are going to want to look at something that supports them. Um, and that's, uh, I'm not sure what Amazon has. I know you've been looking a little bit at them. Do you know what platforms they they support? Off off the top of my head, I'm not positive since I'm really only looking in the context of iOS and Android right now. <laughs> You're the problem. <laughs> but I, so I, I'm assuming they would do iOS, Android, and I would be surprised if they don't do Amazon as well, just given that Azure does it. Yeah. I mean, they, they definitely have, you know, they, they support their own platforms for sure. Yeah. So... Um, so yeah, so why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about Push Sharp since you mentioned that you have you know version three kind of coming down the pipeline. Like, what's what's coming in version three? What's changing? Yeah, so when I wrote the first version, or I guess let's call it version two because one and two were were pretty similar in infrastructure. Um, I, this was back when .NET four five was really just new and out, and so I wrote it with the intent that people not moving to .NET 4.5 would still be able to use this. And that means a lot of things if if you know your history well, like the whole system threading tasks implementation, um, you know, async await, all these kinds of things that have 
made our lives so much better in such a short time as developers weren't really available so much at the time. Uh, and maybe it was, you know, even done at three, five and not so much four uh, that I, that I was targeting in those days. So that was a really big design decision um, to not go with the latest and greatest and to, to keep supporting older stuff. And so that meant a lot of custom you know, implementations of doing my own like worker tasks and and trying to scale things out so that you could throw a whole bunch of notifications at this library and it would handle things like knowing when to increase the number of threads that it needs to send to a specific provider to get all of your notifications sent and stuff like that. And because of the way that Apple implemented their protocol, I had to do things a little bit differently to not be waiting on a response from every notification that I sent. And because I was trying to do like, you know, implement this abstraction over these different providers, I had to make some really weird decisions about how to process notifications and how to signal that they've failed or succeeded. And the lowest common denominator being Apple sort of brought that whole infrastructure down a level of reliability. I think, um, Hmm. to be honest, it, it probably, have learned a lot of tricks since then and didn't do things in in a perfectly reliable way. So, um, you know, people sending millions of notifications through it, uh, you often saw that when you're sending them to Apple, especially there might be a few that get dropped in there around some of the failure conditions. Uh, and one of the hard things about implementing this has been testing at all. Um, so it's, it's really, Apple doesn't give you a way to test sending, you know, a million notifications to their servers. So I've gone through a number of iterations of building my own test servers to try and simulate those conditions. And you can do so much with that, but you can't really, you can't really test the actual behavior that you're going to see in production. So without having an app myself that, that targeted enough people to, to test at scale like that, there were definitely some reliability problems, especially when it came to iOS with the, the 2.0 series. Um, and what usually I ended up telling people is to, to throttle back their own notifications a bit. So like don't queue a million at a time because that usually caused problems. But if you queued like a thousand or 2000 at a time and waited for those to process and then carried on with life, usually that worked out all right. Um, so that's really the biggest difference between two and, and three is the whole infrastructure um, is now based on, you know, tasks. I can now use async await. I can now use the HTTP client that didn't exist before. Um, so using all the new things basically, and I'm, I'm really taking the approach of, um, I don't really care if you're not on the latest version, if you want to use this, you have to be on the latest version of .NET. Uh, mm. So that's afforded me a lot of, um, leeway in making things, I think a little bit more reliably in, in an easier way. And now with Apple's new provider API, once that gets implemented, I'll be able to, to change a few more things too, to, to make that code a little bit more streamlined. So then is, is push sharp still staying as a, you know, like a raw C sharp or a, a raw dot net class library then, as opposed to, you know, it doesn't really need to be any kind of portable profile since it's meant for the server. Yeah, it's meant for the server, but I, I have started looking at the possibility of making it, uh, well now .NET core, right. Is the new terminology since a couple of days ago or something. So I want to make yep. it compatible with that because I think that frees up people to run it on different platforms. I mean, it already, um, like I, de- I develop it on a Mac. I use Mono as my daily uh, framework, uh, my daily CLR. But I want to make it available on that platform too, just just to to be sort of common everywhere. Hmm. So that's the intent. Um, that may change a little bit, given that I'm doing a lot of work with secure connections, um, especially with Apple. So it's it's actually surprisingly tricky to connect over TLS 1.2 in any kind of environment like that. So for now it's, it's really just kind of raw.net eventually .net core. And I I do have a strange amount of people who do seem to think that they want to use it on mobile applications, like on mobile devices. And um, you know, just to, to plug in here that that's not something you should do. Like you should never publish your private key to send notifications to all of your app users in your application itself. Like it's just, that's not what the the people, the providers want you to do. So it definitely will never get mobile support like that. 
Right. I mean, it's the same reason why you shouldn't have your apps talking directly to your database. Exactly. Right? Like the, that's why you stand up APIs. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, don't ever try doing that if you're thinking about it. That's that's rule number one. <laughs> so then it is is push sharp three kind of like more or less a, an under the hood kind of change or will users see any changes around like the the API surface area or or that will like is it will it be a big breaking change? Yeah, um, it's definitely a breaking change. Um, so in, in the 2.0 series, I had this concept of like this of push brokers and like this central broker that you could basically throw any any kind of platform notification at. Um, and the way that it, it did this was registering different platform types with that that central broker. And that caused a lot of confusion, actually, I found, where people were like doing weird things and registering different subclass notification types and getting like duplicate notifications because they weren't really using it how I ever thought people would try and use it. Um, mm-hmm. So I've I've decided that simpler is better. It's really not much more code to create an, an instance of a, a, a broker per platform that you need. Um, and then it gets interesting, too, once you try to start adding multiple applications and you know, if if you were to go the route of push sharp with with your situation, you'd you'd be in the same boat where you'll have to make you know a different iOS broker for every iOS application that you that you have, right? And so mm-hmm. people got confused a little bit about that too. It's like, well, do I do I need one central broker for multiple applications, or do I need multiple ones for different applications? So I've definitely gone sort of the streamlined route this time around, and and I'm putting a little bit more work in the developer's hands, but I don't think it's that onerous and in favor of being a little bit more simple to understand. Right. And having a more explicit API that yeah. at least has a better mental model, right? Yeah. And that was another thing that I, I tried to um, make the, like, especially for iOS, building a notification, I tried to make that whole API really like fluid and friendly and easy to use. Um, instead of giving someone giving you like a, a JSON field to construct your payload um, and trying to, to help you not have to know as much about the format. But I think as mm-hmm. soon as you start doing stuff like that, people get more confused more quickly or they don't have to then try and understand the actual format that they need to use. And, you know, in some cases that's good. But from my experience with PushSharp, it, it generally cause more problems than just saying, hey, here's the field that you throw your JSON at, go read Apple's documentation for what you need to actually construct. Because like that's, you know, that's not really um, the objective or the scope of the library at that point. Right. So then so then in those cases, Push Sharp's kind of stepping back the the layers of abstraction as far as the platform stuff and saying, okay, Push Sharp is really here to handle all the communication and networking and protocol stuff, but not necessarily the formatting and things like that. Yeah, I mean the the different platforms still have like their own notification type, and those each of those notification types has some like explicit fields. Like every iOS message you're going to send has to have a device token. Um, it has to have you know a priority assigned to it. It has to have or it can have an expiration date, and there's stuff like that that I'll keep on the you know the app or the platform specific level um but then as far as and it, it's interesting because every platform is fairly similar in that they all have this concept of the actual payload of the message which contains like your you know all of your custom information and how to display the notification and how to to you know whatever extra stuff you want to send to the user so that's the point where i've stepped back and i'm saying i'm not i'm not going to try and help you construct that payload um, here's, you know, here's a field, you build the JSON or the XML yourself and I'll send it for you. Gotcha. Um, so then, you know, we should talk briefly about what it would look, what it looks like to a developer who wants to use a more hosted solution. No. So if I went towards say AWS or for Azure and I wanted to take advantage of, you know, pushing to iOS and Android or, and, and windows, like, what does that end up looking like from the like a development standpoint. Yeah, I mean for Azure, I mean unfortunately you still have to go through the pains of setting up, you know, your your certificates and everything with Apple. Like they don't do that for you. Um but basically you upload that certificate in the case of Apple to Azure. Um you give them your your API token in the case of Google. So you set stuff up on their portal and then they've got this um mobile, well they've got a few different ways to do it. It used to be based on like this mobile application service that you could create and now they've got this concept of these notification hubs um and so 
in its simplest form, you basically set everything up in Azure and you, you, you get like this uh, REST API you can call against their services to actually send a notification. And they actually take a similar approach where like there's some specific fields and stuff that you can send them for each different platform. But the payload that you construct, like that's your job to deal with that. You send that to them and they'll send it to the appropriate place. Uh, the, the interesting thing about like Azure and, and Amazon is they have a few more features too. Like Azure, I'm, I'm not as familiar with Amazon, but Azure has this concept of, of like these topics. So you can create, um, and you can, when you're registering on the client side, you can say, well, I want this client to also subscribe to this topic. So let's say you're building like a sports score app and you want um, the Toronto Maple Leaf scores. I don't know anymore as a fan why you want to know what those scores are, <laughs> but let's say you do. So you might, you know, favorite Toronto Maple Leafs in the app and the app might say, okay, subscribe to the Maple Leafs topic. And so all the users that have done that now in your app, you can say, I want to send a notification to all of the people in the Maple Leafs topic, and they'll take care of figuring out what actual device identifiers they need to send it to. So it's a, there are definitely some, some perks to using some hosted solutions like that. Uh, But that's the general idea. They, they just basically are, are taking the, the transport, um, logic away from you and doing it for you and then are they also taking and handling the the things like the feedback service and deregistration or token swapping or everything like that do they basically abstract all of that away from you yeah so they'll do that for you um on ios um i'm not sure there's there's got to be a way that you can get that back from their rest service too um but you still have to like on on Android in particular too. You'll still get like a, a deregistration event that might occur on the client side as well. So you can you can still do with that what you want. Um, but they'll handle a lot of that for you. Right. But they still expose methods for you to to get some sort of alert that a device went away, so you could update your own database yeah, or react yeah, accordingly. Yeah. Makes sense. So so is there anything that we we didn't touch on that we should? I think we we covered the gamut pretty well. Um, you know, Apple was definitely the most difficult in the whole notification space, so just expect that. Um, but really, it's it's not that hard to do once you understand some of the basic concepts. And you know, if you're wanting to get into it, I would say go go try Azure. That's probably the easiest way for a, especially for a .NET developer to get started. Awesome. Well, um, you know, it was good to actually record an episode. It's yeah. good to be back. Good to. To, to chat with you again and uh, thanks for listening and we'll, we'll catch you next time soon I swear <laughs> on Gone Mobile.